0: Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Percolata podcast. I'm Greg Tanaka, founder and CEO of Percolata, and today we're interviewing a seasoned retail executive, Craig Levera. Craig Levera led Sports Relay from 1997 until May 2015. Initially as president and chief operating officer, he was elected to the board of directors in 1998 and as chairman and CEO from 2001 until the sale of Sports Relay. Under Mr. Lover's leadership, The company grew from 18 to 55 full service stores, generating over $400 million in annual revenue, with 3,000 highly trained employee experts and 1,000 product vendors serving 2.7 million customers. He led the transformation of the small business into a successfully public traded NASDAQ traded specialty retail focused on utilizing technology to deliver second to none customer engagement. Strategic initiatives initiated by the company during his tenure include the implementation of an enterprise wide ERP IT platform, SAP, the opening of a new distribution center with a new warehouse management system. Implementation of CRM. During his tenure, SportsColet was twice named one of America's best 200 small companies by Forbes magazine and based on its ability to deliver against consumers' needs and desires, was ranked as nation's most desired retailer in the U.S. by Can Bay Research Institute. In addition, SportsColet earned the ICSC Silver Award for Outstanding Customer Facing Store Design with the opening of the company's next-gen concept in downtown Los Angeles. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So, Craig, were you we able to transform Sports away from a small family business to a large, successful retailer?
1: Well, We undertook a n- number of initiatives when I joined the company. We were, we were relatively small. We had gone public a few years earlier and highly entrepreneurial, centered on customer service and customer engagement. So the underlying culture was very strong. What we lacked was uh, really data and technology to lead us to the next level and get onto high-speed growth. And one of the first steps we undertook was to engage in strategic planning to understand our systems' capabilities and needs. Uh, really begin to synthesize processes and look for ways that we could drop dollars to the bottom line while increasing engagement with our with our clients and consumers that love shopping with Forte. And that got us down a path of focused growth. Selecting the correct real estate, understanding how technology played a role in our customers' lives, really spent quite a bit of time looking at the level of training and service we were offering our clients and our customers on our selling floors. Did we have the right people? Were they trained to sell very expensive, you know, specialty outdoor and athletic gear? And as we morphed the business model to take a leadership position with first to market and performance technology and lifestyle merchandise, and the services to back that up whether it was ski and snowboard repair or teaching consumers how to scuba dive or lining uh, fishing wheels on and on we really had to have the best experts on the floor and make sure they were available when when our clients expected them to be there so a lot of heavy lifting but all in all a great deal of excitement and fun and, and the numbers
0: results speak for themselves interesting change right um because you know the idea was well you don't need a brick and mortar store you just buy everything online and it gets delivered to your door why have these traditional, uh, no traditional pure-play online retailers opened brick-and-mortar stores? Well, I think I think
1: everybody realizes everybody in, in retail that
0: touches a consumer today realizes there is some
1: physicality, right? It has to be there. Uh, there's a great book that a that a, a board member wrote that I think everybody would enjoy reading. from. certainly did, named Free, Perfect, and Now, by a man named Rob Rhoden. Uh, the challenge he presented was today's customers want products or services free. They want it perfect, and they want it now. So when you you take those three premises in place and you say what has the ability to deliver at least the perfect, the free part's a little tough, but the perfect and the now, well, nothing means now better than pulling into a store and, 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 and walking out with an item that you want or need that particular day. The perfect really lies in what what Amazon's been able to do and and other great online retailers and the perfection of the delivery of the the shopping and the delivery mechanism, right? So everything in this world is becoming a buy bye Amazon is there along with some others. And I think individual consumer behavior, individual customer behavior. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, gosh, I need to go do some online shopping today or I need to do some mobile shopping today or I need to go get this, right? It's I need to buy this. And what comes to mind next is what are my best chances of getting it? and and what's the lead time for the need, right? So if it's an automatic click and it's a simple reorder on a website, great. If it's, hey, I've got to go try something on or I want to touch this fabric before I give it to a family member as a gift, then that changes the conversation pretty radically. But this channel segregation that existed for so many years inside of most retail organizations, large and small, has thankfully and, and, and with great relief all been merged together so that the uh, experience is agnostic. The brand's got to be consistent across all the platforms. And the experience should be high-touch, irrespective of it's in person, uh, with a delivery service, or from an online uh, perspective. And so that great morphing together of all of these tools and all of these behaviors is really just following where you know customers want to go. So it's going to be obsolete. Obsolete stores will fail, however. And online will continue to grow, but it won't grow forever unless it continues to morph and change, which it is. And so it's it, it makes retail fundamentally exciting because you really are dealing with individual consumer behavior. That kind of adds more pressure to what happens inside of a particular store, right? There's never been greater pressure on, on retailers today for cost control than there is right now. Margins are getting squeezed top line inside of stores themselves continue to struggle from an overall industry perspective. You know, 2 or 3% same-store sales growth is a, is a good win, uh, given what's going on today. And so that puts more pressure on the operations and scheduling teams to make sure that they've got exactly the right people at exactly the right stations at exactly the right times to make sure that when a client comes in, properly staffed in footwear with knowledge, knowledgeable and trained experts. Uh, in our case, that, that was our role. Uh if you've got a business that experiences choppy behavior in a particular category or two or seasonally adjusts and the temperature change means that seasonal 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 adjustment has to take in a more accelerate take place in a more accelerated fashion, then that has to be there as well. And that kind of goes back to utilizing technology in the web for outstanding ways to think about measuring customer input and flow through inside of a given building. So important today, and then making sure your staff correctly uh, it's the Goldilocks principle, right? Uh, you don't want it too hot and you don't want it too cold. In other words, not too much or not too little. Either way, you're going to lose. So it goes back to having exactly the right people in exactly the right departments at exactly the right times to meet customer demand, which is, by the way, constantly changing. So very difficult,
0: but very interesting uh, problem to attack. Sure. So is your view that um, in terms of the future of retail, that's not going to be just online or just offline. It's going to be this Reverend everyone's saying, omni-channel.
1: Yeah, and I'm not even. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm not even sure that that I even enjoy using the word omni-channel anymore. it's it has to be an immersive experience, right? And it and it has to and it's and it is driven today by technology, right? Who gets in their car today and goes to look for an item that, let's say, is over fifty or hundred dollars? That doesn't. They have to go to a store that doesn't check first to make sure that item that is in stock, right? If you're on a if you're on a mission to go buy something, whether it's a a toner cartridge or in my case, uh, I need a new crampons for ice climbing. You know, you want to make sure those items are in stock in your size before you make the drive over to, to try them on and fit them out and make sure that they're, they're correct. And if you can wait a few days and online, uh, you know, clearly an alternative. So I think that portion of it has changed pretty dramatically. And again, uh, the most successful retailers globally understand that, believe in it, and have restructured their teams and their organizational charts uh, to make sure that that happens. Uh, one of our executives at National Retail Federation, Vicki Cantrell, has written a, a brilliant white paper on the study uh, two years ago about how retail organizations have morphed and changed to uh, elevate the role of mobile and digital marketing and merchandising within organizations, and in many cases now lead the organizations and or the source teams. If there is a separate structure, in many cases uh, fall into second place because they understand the importance of presenting merchandise correctly uh, on a website experience that makes it fun and focused and the assortments there but the clutter isn't and that's an amazon beer, in, in my opinion so the more retail thinks about that and investigates these new opportunities and looks down a path of excitement I think the better you know future there is and those that
0: can't or won't eventually aren't going to make it so so Craig as as we uh, think about the the changing landscape in these physical retail stores and and the, and the role that they're playing what what role does the sales associate play? Um, you know, typically labor is almost half the operating budget for most retailers. And so it's a pretty big line item. And, and so what roles do they play in this kind of evolving landscape? So you're right. It is a big line item. It's occupancy and, and labor expense are the two major expense lines. And at every board
1: meeting or every uh, executive meeting, those two are discussed on a regular basis, as all of our listeners know. It depends on the strategy. If your strategy is that you are a, a, a a stack them and sell them strategy that, that the level of customer engagement other than checkout doesn't have to be there, then then in a sense payroll becomes a commodity, and you manage it as such. It takes x number of units to move product from a truck onto the selling floor onto a shelf, and x number of units x number of employees to check somebody out at the front uh, at the front registers. If the experience is engaging, if you're selling high end technical services or very expensive product or a luxury environment that experience changes pretty dramatically, and it can add you know countless minutes, if not hours, to an overall selling process, and makes that equation a lot more difficult to fundamentally understand and manage. And retailers that span across the country and then have different assortments, even the strategy might be the same, but different assortments or different categories on a by location basis really struggle with this because it can't be a one-size-fits-all attack on managing labor and managing scheduling appropriately. So if it's if the product is high priced, consumers expect knowledge on the floor that's every bit as good as, as typically what they have internally. I can explain the differences and features and benefits in a meaningful way, ask the right questions in a meaningful way for those clients. And typically those are higher priced associates that may or may not be on commission that have earned the pay, uh, arguably given their level of training and expertise. And that presents one set of challenges, and then there is a different tier where again it's more self-select and self-serve, where you have a different level uh, of, of engagement that's expected by consumers. But the other piece of that too, Greg, is the you know uh, um, sales associates' uh, ability uh, to quickly utilize technology. You know, is everybody armed with an iPad? Can everybody, is everybody armed with a mobile? If, if an item's missing or out of stock in a particular size. You have to walk all the way to the front to try to find it in another location or from the warehouse or the online store. Or can an associate pull out a mobile device, uh, do a quick look up and say, you know, we don't have your size here, but we've got the store five miles away. I can have it shipped to your home later this afternoon if you'd like, or we can hold it for you to pick up. That level of engagement, I think, overall really impresses customers. And data suggests that if you're a retailer that's out of stock of a particular size or color, and you have the ability to instantaneously find it in another location and complete the sale in the store, even though the product isn't physically available, the average order value actually improves by more than 10%. So say nothing about how happy that customer
0: is and how often they'll come back. Sure, that, that makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> so it sounds like in these kind of experiential situations where the, the sales associate is really you know, better trained and is supposed to help educate customers, How does a retailer evaluate these kind of employees, and how do they know who to staff on the selling floor at any given time?
1: Well, every company does it slightly differently. I know one of the ways that we've seen it done the best is going through a series of of employee training and development workshops that are technically focused. And uh, in our case, it's fortunately, because we use the nomenclature, the home of the experts, uh, we really had to make sure that everybody uh, on our floor was an expert, and so there were 35 separate certifications to become a certified expert in a category, many requiring hands-on tests, certification proof. A lot of what we sold could get an individual killed if the gear or the instruction wasn't correct. So it was extremely important to us and those series of tests and clinics and networks were driven at a very high level and and we had a 30% failure rate, right? I think that, that, that employees wouldn't pass their test on the first time by, by a tune of 30%. So we made it extremely rigorous and extremely difficult. But when they were through it and done, then we had recurrent training and, and took it forward. And I think you think about any high touch service environment. So if you're in the automobile uh, parts industry, and part of that component is automobile service, and you have every type of car, every make under the planet rolling in for some kind of service, that's a different level of training that, that you know is required and, and, and puts pressure on those organizations. Same thing if you're, let's say, in the jewelry business and, and, and the cuts and clarity of, of diamonds and jewelry and how to, how to be certified in that category and run it. Food service industry, exactly the same way. So every every industry and every player within a segment of the industry has different staffing needs and different levels of expertise required. And again, what's exciting today and, and part of what drove our growth uh, as we thought about technology at Scorchulay was the standard expensive Uh, uh, behemoth solutions great as they are aren't necessarily the correct way to go in terms of the size of the business you have and the speed that you want to get things done so the good news is there's plenty of young companies that uh, utilize technology available in the cloud and on the web to really deliver greater results faster easier to understand ultimately better metrics percolata being one of those of course that can really help retailers understand the dynamics of payroll, the dynamics of scheduling, and the dynamics of sales expertise when and where it's required and deliver on that promise. So uh, retailers have a better chance of uh, scheduling exactly the right employees at exactly the right times so when demand is there and delighting customers. And then because you've got fewer customers, let's say, per employee on aggregate, typically. Uh, and so you have a chance to do, uh, be a lot more engaging. You're not juggling three or four customers at once, Can can ask more questions can suggest more add-ons, and I think that's one way to do it. Ultimately, there, there'll be a way, and I think there's a couple of retailers out there that are already doing it, Uber being one, I consider Uber a retailer, where you do an instantaneous rating of how was your service today. And I'm surprised more retailers haven't adopted that, that when you walk out of a, of a fiscal location, you're not getting a, a, a quick notification and saying, hey, how do we do to understand uh, Greg and Footwear, you know, uh, your shoes and, and also check you out. So how, how did Greg perform for that? One to five stars. And Uber's doing it, right? So many others are doing it. So why, why aren't more retailers doing it exactly the same way? And so that, in, that, delight, that, that delight measure, if you will, one to five stars, sounds to me like it'd be something very easy to do across all major retailers. In real time, you can measure what's going on in a particular store. Is the engagement level up? Is the engagement level down? And then try to figure out if it's down what's going on and why, and address it that day.
0: Sure, that makes sense. Um, you know, a lot of retailers measure net promoter scores, right? They do surveys and try, try mm-hmm. to sample customers, right, to measure is um, is experience good or not. Um, but, you know, you bring up a really good topic, which is, you know, I, I think a lot of traditional ways of measuring retail performance has been dollars per square foot, right, with like mm-hmm. some retailers like Apple where they have amazing dollars per square foot. But, you know, I, th- I think as as you, as you you I hear you talking, you know, I think one concept I've been hearing about recently is this concept of experience per square foot, right? trying to maximize not necessarily the dollars per square foot, because, you know, someone might buy it online or might buy it in the store. But maybe what really matters is experience, right, to really maximize the experience. How do you see that? I mean that, that. Unfortunately, that metric is a very hard metric to measure. Unlike dollars, dollars are very concrete and quantitative, but experience is is not. I and mean, you can do surveys, but if if retailers are really trying to go after this, you know, for the physical stores, maximizing experience per square foot, how do you think they actually can can measure it in a scalable way? Well, there are a number of
1: companies out there that do a great job in, in measuring I- I- experience and getting those surveys back. Here's the metric I would argue that could be most uh, beneficial. I would think. Uh, lifetime value of an individual customer would be the best way to measure the experience, right? Because not every shopping trip results in a purchase, nor should it. By the growth of online car buying, there's still that component of just looking through before you actually purchase a car, test driving three or four models, and start to think about a future purchase or a future lease. I think that drills down to the luxury segment of retail um, uh, in a way that's also very very meaningful in terms of how to think about that. Uh, we would constantly stress that all of those visits in October and November, if they didn't result in a sale, that we shouldn't be upset about that because hopefully it was a lot of pre-holiday shopping for those who had time to do so. I know that sounds, you know, uh, a touch outdated, uh, but I think it's still applicable in some respects. Getting ideas for your family on what they might want uh, for holiday season or gift-giving season in advance of actually making the purchase. And you could argue you can do it online just as easily as walking into a fiscal store. But I think that that piece is important. There are multiple companies out there that do a great job on customer surveys, uh, both real-time and after-the-fact. And I think there are ways uh, to think about that overall. And then we have this wonderful uh, uh, engine called Yelp that uh, allows everybody to express their pleasure or displeasure real-time. And uh, another way of measuring overall engagement and how uh, an individual service or, or retail provider is delivering on that engagement.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard of some retailers where they they'll come up like with composite scores of using Yelp ratings, Net Promoter scores, you know, Secret shopper, uh, mm-hmm. um, and 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 come up with a composite score for stores. Do you see that to be coming more prevalent um, in in physical retail? There's no question about
1: it. Physical and online retail both, right? So I think when you look at that and you look at the survey results, the promotion scores overall. Uh, uh, we would run weekly Yelp scores against comps, against weekly comps to, to look at the correlation and against payroll percents, right? And to look at all that data accordingly to say, were we too tight on payroll? Were we too long on payroll? How was the experience? You know, were we spot on right or not? And all of that's, you know, super, super important, you know, understanding there's always an outlier, you know, positive and negative, and you have to kind of Way against the overall composite score to make sure you're not knee-jerking a reaction due to one review, good or bad. Um, but there's no shortage of data, right, today in today's world. So if you say you don't have data on something, shame on you. There's no shortage of data. It's how do you synthesize that data and put it in a meaningful format that your teams can take action on, uh, whether it's the store teams, uh, the customer service teams, as engaged in individual customer service around loyalty programs or certainly the online and digital experience or, or or customer service teams and ancillary services that you might provide, whether it's instructions or rentals or repairs, all those add up. Uh, and the best retailers have a way to uh, to measure those and, and take action appropriately. The tools are there. So more pressure uh, to do so. But I think, you know, again, with the newer tools that are more nimble and and more agile, and, and better understand how behavior takes place, and the challenges of human behavior—not only on the client side, but certainly on the employee side. There, there is some element of because you're dealing with human beings; it's an imperfect world, and you have to build a little room in there for imperfections in behavior, and you have to build that model in, or build that component into to labor scheduling, and adds more more challenges. But there are certainly tools like Percolata can address that issue, and uh, and make that uh, sales team very powerful and very effective.
0: I think your comment about the um, staffing between location is actually quite interesting. I was reading about how Zara, which is one of the leading apparel retailers, how you know one of the one of their key key strengths was their ability to actually staff between stores and so that they had a big essentially a bigger pool of labor to play with when they actually staffed. So that that, that kinda of makes a lot of sense and I, I think it's probably gonna be more common as as, as people adopt systems that actually have that capability.
1: I say, I think you're right. And I think in in the case of Czar, it really gives those employees that are willing to do that a real path to the future, in terms of moving up into management, you know, really going forward, becoming full-time employees. I'm not sure this whole push on making everybody a part-time employee is exactly right, given you want to build an infrastructure and a base for growth, right? And that means more hours, not less, more training, not less, and, you know, not for everybody, but for the right team of leaders that you're building for the future. And that scheduling flexibility allows you to have, from a pure human resource management perspective, the the ability to create the next round of leaders, assistant general managers and general managers and district managers and on in the corporate, Uh, you have the ability to create that right path. And again, those right tools can help you set, here are my stars, and these are the ones that are going to take precedence, and these are the ones we want to move up in management. And uh, that creates excitement. And enthusiasm inside any
0: organization, you know, the chance to grow and do better. So it, it sounds like one of the, the key things to, to forecasting is really to know, like, how many customers there are. And, you know, today, a lot of enterprise retailers have some sort of traffic sensor, traffic counter. In, in my experience in talking to retailers, it seems like a lot of retailers may not actually have that hooked up to their forecasting service, or maybe they don't even have, especially if you, as you go to mid-market, smaller retailers, a lot of them don't even have any sort of Traffic counters. Why do you think that um, it's, it's so common that, you know, when, when it, you know, we've just, we, we just been talking for the past um, half hour or so about the importance of really making sure you have the right people there at the right time and the right number. But so many retailers actually seem to not actually have that, like the complete loop, right? Where, you know, you know how many customers are, you feed that into a forecast, then you staff against that. Why do you think? It's, it's even in this day and age, 2016, why is it so, so common, especially among the, the small and mid-market retailers, for them, it's difficult for them to actually have this kind of complete loop um, so that can really provide the best customer service? Greg, that's an excellent question. My full, fundamental belief on that
1: issue is that many retailers haven't been exposed to the right kind of systems that allow them to extrapolate the data correctly. And that whether you've used either you know visual uh, means to measure customer throughput exclusively or physical means, in other words, number, footsteps on a particular pad as customers walk into a location, use those individual metrics as a standalone, the results have come back very inconclusive and therefore very choppy. And, and more importantly, not tied back into a labor scheduling system. Oftentimes, the marketing teams will push harder for customer counts than the operations team or the merchandising team, simply because they want to prove that the marketing uh, initiatives that they have in place are driving consumers into a particular location or onto a particular website. Whether an actual transaction takes place is up to the operators, if you will, the website or the management teams of an individual. You know that the conversion ratio was so critical. And when you think about retail and whether it's, whether it's, whether it's self serve or full serve or luxury or opening price point, it's a whole lot different than if you're running a stadium, right? Where every consumer walking in has a ticket. A ticket is scanned. Uh, you pass through a detector, you go through a turnstile and you know the exact attendance, right? And you know exactly how many people walked in at any given point in time. Same thing in an amusement park at Disneyland or Disney World, exactly the same metrics. So they have, an argument to leg up on those uh, of us who are in traditional retail where you don't have that individual ticket-taking experience taking place. A, a whole team can walk in, a whole a group of friends can walk in, a whole family can walk in. You may have one buying unit comprised of two, four, six, eight people that are going to buy one thing or collection of things. And how do you amalgamate that group against an individual who walks in? And, and typically, because retailers have only gone down one individual measuring piece and not tied that back in correctly to scheduling or to the operations portion of the business, operating metrics, the results have been inconclusive and choppy and hence the enthusiasm isn't there in the way you think it might be. That has a high degree of uh, direct consumer penetration as the sport. And I'll give you an example. If you visit a Bed Bath & Beyond, think about Bed Bath & Beyond. Right. Most of their larger competitors have gone away. So if you're running Bed Bath and Beyond, you're thinking about Amazon, Target, you know, some of the traditional part, uh, traditional department stores, but there's nobody really left, right? The your model. If you're uh, in the office supply world with the consolidation there, they're down to what, one or two major players. And again, Amazon and some of the online retailers, there's nobody left. But you don't, you can't go to a Kiro Serra store. You can't go really to a Rubbermaid store. You don't go to a Field Press store unless it's in one of the outlet malls. But there's a whole level of engagement uh, at a Nike location with the multiple tiers, a whole level of engagement at North Face locations or Under Armour locations, and online even more impressive in terms of the brand building stories and the full assortment of product being offered online. So it's a different animal entirely, highly fragmented. The vendors as well as retailers, digital and physical, are all competing for a rather stagnant. Customer base in terms of number of new entrants versus each year versus those who fall out of the category, and so it's a completely different dynamic, and arguably makes it a very tough industry to compete against because there are so many moving pieces. Now the good news is because it's so highly fragmented, there's no clear-cut winner. You know those that operate in the mall, there are winners and losers there. and All you have to do is look at the public reporting; it indicates that same thing with those that operate larger formats in in, uh, also in mall or in suburban uh, centers, power centers. And then there's a whole, you know, on-mountain experience. There's a whole at-the-ocean experience if you're in the stand-up paddle boarding or water sports or surf or scuba. And, and, you know, the bicycle industry fundamentally is healthy still at the IBD level, although that's starting to show some erosion. So it's fundamentally different. It's fundamentally more fragmented. And therefore, there's great opportunity for those who uh, operate at a very high level of execution and really tremendous risk for those who don't that they don't have the right strategy wrapped around best employee utilization and best use of data and metrics uh, or those who can't accurately and convincingly chart a course towards the future and push that organization forward uh, towards that future.